for someone to come along, especially at the age of 17 now, after I've been in care this many years, to come along and be like, hey, you know, there's a possibility of being adopted. I, I wasn't having any of it. You're listening to What's it this, is home. this Is Home. This Is Home, a podcast about families. We're going to be allowed to cry. Brought together through unlikely circumstances. We were lost. There was a few weeks where we didn't know where we would live. And the remarkable relationships they forge. I'm Erica Gerard. And I'm Emily Skihan. What does home mean to you? What does home mean to me? How's my jerk answer? A hammock? Your apartment in Los Feliz. Atwater, let's go. Oh, and Atwater, sorry. Home means safety. Home means comfort. What did the idea home mean to you? Home in the simplest term. This is Sharif. It's the people who you live with, the people who you trust, you depend on. He's a 27-year-old student in New York. (laughs) Okay, so first of all, I want to say that uh, I think Susan should handle the time frame because she always jokes on me that I get the time frames wrong and it's all big blur to me. He met a woman named Susan almost nine years ago. Here he's telling me about the very first time that they met. I believe the story pretty much starts out when I was in a group home uh, in Queens. I had just gotten out of a RTC and for those who don't know what an RTC is, it's a residential treatment program. Imagine a campus with about 30 houses, and each of these houses holds a couple of boys, four to eight boys, depending on the house. Um, I moved out of there to a lower level of care because I was reaching the age where I was going to start, you know, moving towards living independently. And so you're about how old at this time? Let's say like 17. I'm about Is that right? 16, 17. Yeah, about 17 years old. For the record, Sharif, you were you were 18 and a half. And almost 19. (laughs) Sharif had been a ward of the state since he was 13 years old and had not lived in a single home with a foster family. Instead, he'd been living in residential institutions, group homes, or RTCs for the more than five years he'd been in foster care. Susan met Sharif while he was in one of those RTCs. So I was working for the city. Uh, I was a senior... um, I was an associate commissioner there, and my main role at the time was to oversee the, the reduction of our reliance on residential care. Residential care is essentially non-family placements for youth in foster care. According to the U.S. Administration for Children and Families, about 1 in 10 of the more than 400,000 youth in foster care in the U.S. live in residential care facilities. Many states have actively tried to cut back on these types of facilities for anything other than absolute emergency placements. Because the evidence shows that young people need family support, not just a place to sleep. So that included closing, you know, working with these providers, these um, nonprofit providers who run the group homes and residential programs to meet with the kids, interview young people, see if what other options we had for them and what other options they had because the whole point was that we wanted to move youth into families. That is their right. That is what's supposed to happen when they come into foster care and it hadn't happened. So we didn't want to just move kids from one group home to another. We really wanted to help connect them to permanent families whenever we possibly could. As Sharif explains, he was in the process of aging out. 
the term reserved for youth in foster care that never find a permanent family placement. Over 20,000 foster youth age out of the system every year, without contacts to family or supportive networks. Without these supports, they are at high risk of homelessness, incarceration, and poor mental health. Living in a residential facility at the time, Sharif was also caught in the middle of the city's plan to do away with living assignments like this for foster youth. So I didn't really know what my options were. But they didn't tell us exactly when the house was closing down, so we had time to prepare. So it was a more of a get your fares in order situation. So that had, they gave me that announcement, and then the people who were doing this shutdown were going to come through and do like a final out, out view kind of thing. They were going to interview people and see where they were at and what's going on before they decided to close it down. And leading this group was this woman who was clearly in charge because everyone, whenever there was a decision to make, would look to her and, you know, those kind of things. And they sat down and interviewed us, each one, each one of the guys in the house, and they would ask us, you know, how long have you been in care? What are your plans? What are you currently doing now? And what struck me as odd, it was that normally when we got these kinds of interviews or any kind of interaction with anyone in position of power, it's kind of a, how do I say this? It was kind of just for the sake of doing it. There was never really any genuine interest about what was going on with us. And with this woman, it was different. As each of us would go down the line and tell her how long we had been in care and how long all the experiences we had gone through, I would see her get more and more upset. So, <laughs> you know, I made a mental note of it and I was like, ah, that's, that's different. You know, I was saying to them, look, we, we want more for you guys than to just stick you in an apartment somewhere. We, we want you to have somewhere to go for the holidays throughout your life. We want you to have a family to rely on. And they were just looking at me like, who are you, lady? It's a little late. You know, I'm 19. <laughs> Where have you been? And Sharif, would you say mm-hmm. that's an accurate description of, of what your attitude was at the time? Oh, I was one of those kids who just didn't believe that that was going to happen. Sharif had been adopted at the age of three by the only person he had ever really known as his mother. At age 13, this woman released him back into the care of the state. It was after this failed adoption and five years of facility placements that Sharif met Susan. The idea of family was, in Sharif's opinion, by this point, beyond far-fetched. So for someone to come along, especially at the age of 17 now, after I've been in care this many years, to come along like, hey, you know, there's a possibility of being adopted, I wasn't having any of it. So my attitude was pretty much, yeah, I don't want to hear any of this. Sharif did end up attending an event that Susan's team put together. To give you an idea of what this event was like, think of speed dating, but instead of potential romantic matches, the participants are potential parents and teenagers, many of whom have already been burned by parents. And so you could say Sharif went rogue and started interviewing one of the few adults there that had no intention of being interviewed. And... See Susan over in the corner just typing away on her phone. I don't know what she was doing, but I went over to her and I don't know what came over me, but I kind of just like pressed her. And you know, she was doing a lot of this promoting about getting the people into families, etc. So I just asked her, Why aren't you a foster parent? You know? Absolutely a legitimate question. And I looked at him and I said, 
Well, I've I've thought about it, and I, and indeed I had, but I said, well, you know, I'm just flustered because he's totally got me on the spot. And I said, well, you know, I've thought about it, but you know, what would I know about being a parent? And he looks me straight in the eye, and he said, well, you get kids. And then I said, well, what if they don't like me? And he looked me straight in the eye, and he said, well, I like you. And what do you say to that? <laughs> so, you know, he just, he was so courageous in putting that out there and just, you know, a lot of kids are afraid of eye contact, afraid of of communicating that way, and he was so direct. And I just, so I think, you know, we just, I don't know how that ended, but we kind of meandered over to the other, the other staff who were putting this together, and one of them asked Sharif, he said, you know, Sharif, have you, have you met any people here tonight that you would consider, you know, that, that, that are like interesting to you? And he looked at him and, and Sharif looked at him and he said, Susan's my first choice. <laughs> and, the, and the guy says, well, you know, she's not actually a foster parent. And he said, well, I don't have a second choice. So, and I was just sort of standing off to the side when I was like, oh my God, I really have to, you know, <laughs> I think right that moment I knew that my life had just changed. At the time, Susan was 40 or 41. She was single. She wanted to be a parent and she had thought about fostering, but never an older child, only a baby. Sharif, or any teenager for that matter, was certainly not in her plan. It actually wasn't really in Sharif's plan either. He said he was impressed by Susan from the beginning, that most people he had met in the system didn't really seem to care, and Susan did, but he was also about to age out. So why not be bold and throw out a Hail Mary, as he called it? It was super awkward, but that comes with the territory. <laughs> I mean, in the... In we're being really real about this. It's, I'm in the middle of New York City with this random white lady. I have no, I don't know anybody. I, I have no idea where we're going. You know, it's it's kind of scary, but at the same time, it's an opportunity for me to, you know, leave the current situation I'm in. So, you know, like, go with the flow. Sharif was going with the flow, but Susan, on the other hand, did a complete flip. Why wait for a baby, she told me, when this teenager needs me now? She had to go through a conflict of interest process to even be eligible to foster Sharif. But she did, and she felt committed quickly. And I just realized that I think there was a different plan for me. So I really just sort of did that 180, and that, and I never looked back. Even though Susan had been working in the foster care field for 20 years, she was underwhelmed by the training she received as she worked to get licensed as a foster parent for Sharif. Both the voices of foster youth and the message of permanency was completely missing from her mandated preparations. I wanted to get a deeper understanding of the foster care system, so I went to Susan's office in New York. Today, Susan runs an organization called You Gotta Believe. The mission of You Gotta Believe is to find permanent families for youth aging out of the foster care system, which hasn't historically been the first priority of many foster care agencies. Traditional foster parent training is gives people an out. There's a, often a message that just try this kid out or see how it goes. If it doesn't work out, 
will move him or her. And that's, of course, not the message that any foster care agency wants to give. But also their main focus is on is often on reunification. And that's absolutely essential. And so they have to do that. Um, We also focus on reunification and supporting parents in relationships with family no matter what. But our philosophy is that whether you become a foster parent or an adoptive parent, the minute this kid comes into your life, you are making an unconditional lifetime commitment to them. And no matter what, they go to jail, they go to a psych hospital, they run away, they do anything, you're never giving their bed away. You're never, you know, filling it with someone else. You might you might take another kid, but they're always welcome back. There's no, there are no outs. For the foster care system, reunification with one's biological parents is the first priority. However, for older youth in foster care who have often been in the system many years, reunification just isn't an option. Susan's organization, You Gotta Believe, has focused their work on not only improving the training process for foster parents across the entire system, but also reestablishing hope among foster youth that even though reunification may not be possible, a permanent family is possible. They believe that no one ages out, and it's never too late for a family. Look, everyone says they believe that kids should have a permanent family. People are very well-meaning and they're trying very hard. I am not trying to say that the system is full of, you know, people who who aren't trying, but it's incredibly complicated and people are very protective. So, if you're a caseworker and you are really you really care about this kid and everyone says, "Oh, you're a great caseworker," and you're afraid they're going to get hurt. You've seen them get hurt over and over and you don't want them to get their hopes up. You don't want to get you don't want to allow them to get hurt. So it's easier, it's safer to get them an apartment and all of the services that they need because it's emotionally safer. It's emotionally safer. Our goal, uh, you got to believe, is not just to connect kids to families, but to help build capacity in the system and help coach and train workers at these other foster care agencies to know that they can do this too and they can help their kids connect to families. And one kid in that group home gets connected to a family and then suddenly their worker says, oh, it is possible. And people see hope start to creep in in that kid. And then, you know, in our in our experience, that starts to happen. And then young people start to refer themselves to us. Or they say, wait, I want that too. Um, and caseworkers see that, oh, there's a better way. And they see, you know, when we listen to caseworkers and they talk about their stress and the stress that they're, they are enduring in trying to get these kids connected to services who are leaving foster care. I have to get them to, you know, into school and in a job and the stress of finding an apartment. And we say to them, if you would put all of that urgency into finding this kid a parent, parents do those other things and you will sleep so much better because you will know that that child of any age has someone looking out for them.
But parents need help, especially since they're parenting kids who are coping with trauma. You Gotta Believe has youth advocates, former foster youth themselves, and their job is to inspire hope in other foster youth that a permanent family is actually possible and to assist in the training of future parents. Each one of You Gotta Believe's classes include at least two advocates that are part of the teaching team. A lot of training just in the system in general is about how to manage behavior of traumatized kids. We say it's about how to manage your own behavior in relation to traumatized kids. You're not going to change their behavior like with consequences or sticker charts. It's about being flexible. It's about connecting to this kid who is afraid, deathly afraid of relationship. And it's about helping people figure that out. You Gotta Believe's advocates do their best to inspire hope in other foster youth for a permanent family, hope that may have faded through years of surviving foster care. Susan did everything she could to inspire this same type of hope in Sharif. Sharif talked to me about one moment in particular where everything changed for him. This is something that's, you know, that's taken for granted for, by, for most people, but it was when Susan gave me a key to the house. So... A lot of the stories I've heard from other foster kids who have been in foster homes, they don't get keys. What happens is the foster parent will tell you a certain time to be home, and if you're not home by then, then you're just locked out of the house until they come, you know, back from wherever they are until they feel like opening the door. So you're used to feeling like a stranger. So for Susan to come and hand me a key was overwhelming because all the stuff I had heard and even the family that I grew up in, I wasn't old enough to have the keys. That when that happened, you know, I had to take a moment because kind of an emotional thing for me. But um, that's one of the things that made me feel comfortable enough to move and go around and start, you know, exploring and bringing other people around enough to trust her, you know? Yeah, for sure. Do you remember that? Um, do you remember giving him a key, Susan? Oh, yes. It was actually the first, maybe the second time he came for a visit. He wasn't even, hadn't even moved in. But I knew it was really important to him and to me to let him know that I was serious. And so he came to visit and I said, you know, I don't know how long this process is going to take for you to be able to move in officially, but this is your home. I, You are always welcome here. Um, and so I gave him a key actually when he was still visiting. And, um, and that was, he was overwhelmed. He went into his room. He said, you know, I just need a minute. Um, it was really powerful. You know, I, I certainly didn't know that it would have that impact on him. But I was glad I did it. And then he wore that key around his neck for months. I mean, it was cool that he felt that he belonged. See, the thing about the dynamic of this relationship is it's not challenging for me because at any point in time, my decision to leave could have been, you know, I could have at any point in time just said, all right, I can't do this, I'm gone. I, th I think that's the, that how this is a testament to how, you know, patient Susan is, is the challenges all fall on her side. She has to prove that she's in for the long haul. She has to prove that she actually loves me. Susan is a school mom in the best and the worst way. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to explain what I mean. So I'm currently in school for uh, theater and communication. So I've been doing a lot of theater. 
she comes she's come to every single performance I've ever done. Which whether she has to or not. And she'll sometimes bring a whole fan club. She's that mom, you know? She's the one that's from the crowd and it's embarrassing as hell. <laughs> so it's things like she does the, the small things. She puts in the work. She does those things that will make you groan, but in the inside you're, you know, jumping for joy. And she never stops bragging and, you know, it's a lot. A big thank you to Susan and Sharif for sharing their story with us. You can learn more about Susan's organization, You Gotta Believe, on their website, yougottabelieve.org, or on our website at thisishomepodcast.org. Please let us know how you liked this and other episodes by emailing us from our website or finding us on Facebook or Twitter. We can't wait to hear your thoughts on this and our other stories. This is Home is Erica Gerard, Emily Skihan, and Christina Lindstrom. Our sound engineer is Juan Diego Borda at Harmonix Studios. Music by John Maness. Logo and site design, Lane Carlsness at Broadsheet Design. See you next time.